The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Baying at the top of their lungs, their strange harmonic chorus as complex as part singing, they were led to Molly's body and then to Molly's room, where they dropped their heads, their nostrils flaring as they smelled the floor, the bed cover, and the wall with finger marks, and the axe. Like their owners, however, the dogs had never before encountered such a scene. All that they seemed to be able to smell was Molly's blood. They didn't pick up any other scent. From the Midnight Assassin by Skip Hollinsworth. Cuddle up a little closer, love Well, hello, Murder Bookies. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and Hanukkah, and I want to wish you a very happy New Year 2023. Looking forward to wonderful things podcast-wise in this next year. And welcome to Episode 53, The Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer by Skip Hollinsworth. Oh my God, this is such a complex true crime story and beautifully laid out. I am your host, Jill, and I love sharing the best true crime books with you, and The Midnight Assassin is no exception. I had never heard of this case before. Very few had. And if Jack the Ripper interests you, this will have you riveted to your headphones. Oh, and please keep the photos of you and my merch coming in. I am collecting them. I'm on Spreadshop with links for this, photos, the trilogy resources, recipes, all of it at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. So I have to feed you first here at Book Club, and I'm doing a different kind of dish today. Paleo pecan pie. Yeah, yeah. Paleo lovers, I heard you. I have made this many, many times for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it's passed my husband's taste test, and it's the only kind he wants me to make now. I use ready-to-make pie crusts, as you might have guessed, because I do like easy. And you use pure maple syrup. And in a pinch, I have used the regular stuff. It works fine. Coconut sugar, molasses, coconut oil, two eggs, yolk, vanilla, lemon juice, chopped pecans, and pecan halves. You mix the ingredients. No, let them warm to room temperature. It works better. You add the chopped nuts to the mix. Pour that in the pie crust and you decorate the top with the pecan house. I put foil on the top, bake for 30 minutes, take that off, bake for another 15, then you let it cool before you serve, and it is delicious. You will never know that this isn't a traditional pecan pie. Trust me, and trust your guts, murder bookies. Now, my wine choice to go with this is a dry, but sweet, less tall, dry, Oloroso Donuno a Spanish wine. There is a lot going on with this complex but very delicate Oloroso. It opens with a full aroma of walnut, nectarine, apricot, and peach. You get all the fruits. 
followed by a peppery flavor, which I wasn't expecting, mixing with the sweet caramel and brown sugar. Light, this is a really pleasant wine and finishes with hints of browned butter and sautéed mushrooms. Very, very complex. I found this one on the Wine Club B12 page, which has pickup order sites at Walgreens, CVS, Dollar General, Dwayne Reed. So this is really convenient to purchase. It's a bit pricier than I usually present. This runs around $30 a bottle, but there is inflation going on. I saw other Olorosos going for $145 to $290. So this is a really good price for this quality wine. And I think you will love the wine and pie combination. The recipe and wine information is on my blog, which I already mentioned. So check it out, Murder Bookies. And now, let's cue the dramatic music. We're going to begin. Our author, Skip Hollinsworth, he was from Wichita Falls and graduated from TCU in Fort Worth. A reporter, he first worked in Dallas in a number of newspapers and moved on to television production and making documentaries. Back in 1989, Hollinsworth went to work for Texas Monthly, where he remains today. So that's a nice long career there. His work has earned him several journalism awards, a National Headliner Award, the National John Hancock Award, Regional Magazine Association Gold Award for Featured Writing, and he was a finalist for a National Magazine Award. This is the Pulitzer Prize of Magazine Awards, winning in 2010 for Still Life, about a young football player who suffers a crippling football injury and how he copes with life. Skip's work has been included in the best American crime writing through the 2000s. The Midnight Assassin was published in 2015, comes in around 337 pages, and has been described as a true crime historical thriller. And it was a New York Times bestseller. I concur. It is a phenomenal book, and you should read it. Now, Skip Hollinsworth divides the book into six parts. Part one, December 1884 to April 1885. He describes our setting as a, quote, new Texas emerging from the long, painful years of Reconstruction. Only two decades before, Austin had been a rustic cow town with a population below 5,000. Cattle and hogs ran wild in the streets. But by 1885, the city was on the verge of modernity. It's 23,000 residents riding on mule-drawn streetcars, talking on the party line telephones, dining on quail at Dick Bullion's restaurant, taking in performances at the newly refurbished Millet Opera House, end quote. So this is a place that is up and coming. Now, it was a bitter, bitter cold December 30th, 1884. The Western Union Telegram operator in Sioux City, Iowa, punched out a warning of an ice storm coming from the Rocky Mountains. Quote, 13 degrees at 2 p.m., ice, train slowing, end quote. That's about negative 10 Celsius for my non-American murder bookies. Now there are no cell phones, no texts, no instant communication, just the telegraph. Christmas 1884 had been a joyous time for Austin. Carolers from the Blind Asylum were singing a popular new song. Santa Claus is coming to town. I had no idea the song was that old, and that is just so exciting to me. 
By New Year's Eve, the cold remained, the wind blowing hard against the homes, making that whistling sound as it comes through the eaves. Tom Chalmers and his wife were lying in bed in her brother William Hall's home. William and his family had left for Galveston for holiday visits with friends, so the Chalmers were alone that evening. Tom heard a faint knocking at the downstairs door, with a man's stilted voice calling, Help me! The former Texas Ranger was really not eager to leave bed until he heard the door creak open. Now he's up and alert. Damnation, his gun is in another room, too. So Tom cautiously moves and glimpses a man staggering, calling, quote, Mr. Tom, Mr. Tom, for God's sakes, do something to help me. Somebody's near killed me, end quote. Lighting the match, Tom saw a black man, Walter Spencer, a 29-year-old laborer from the Butler Brickyard, who kept company with pretty Molly Smith, a 23-year-old cook and maid. Our author writes, quote, Molly was known as a yellow girl, a phrase used by white people in those years to describe a light-skinned black person, end quote. She worked six days a week for a monthly salary of $10 to $12 and had a place to live, a shack really, in the backyard, end quote. Wearing a nightshirt, Spencer had received bloody gashes in the head and was weaving unsteadily. He said someone had attacked him while he was sleeping and that he'd look for Molly, but dripping blood, it was hard to breathe and he couldn't see anything in the black night. Tom declined to go into the cold in the middle of the night to look for a black man's missing girlfriend. Instead, he wraps up Spencer's head so he didn't bleed to death and escorted him to the door, and no amount of pleading mattered. Then Tom went back to bed. All right, is anyone uncomfortable? I think we'd all be out there looking for Molly. But racism is an ugly barrier at this point. New Year's morning was icy and crisp with few of Austin's 23,000 citizens outdoors. Fires were lit in homes everywhere as people sought warmth, and the telephone rang at the Austin Police Department, with day clerk Bart DeLong answering. Due to the night storm, there was heavy static hissing on the line. A hello girl, as telephone operators recalled them, patched in the call to the station. It was Dr. Ralph Steiner reporting to DeLong that there was a woman lying near the grocery store and an officer should investigate. There were 12 men on the Austin Police Department, and only a few were on duty that morning. And one was homesick, suffering from the mosquito-borne dengue fever. Serious fact, dengue fever feels like the flu. In its severe form, it is dengue hemorrhagic fever, which causes severe bleeding, a drop in blood pressure, and death. Fortunately, today it is rare, There were 1,475 cases in the United States in 2019, but in 2021, only 117. In 2022, there have now been 888. It is far more common in South America, East Africa, and Southeast Asia, with over 5 million infections in 2019, and is a leading killer of children. So it's a serious illness, just to give you an idea. Anyway, That day in Austin, it fell to patrol officer William Howe to respond. He was an officer who didn't regularly investigate the four to five murders that occurred in Austin each year. Winding up at the Hall House, Tom Calmers told Officer Howe about Walter Spencer knocking on his door, being injured, and looking for Molly Smith last night. 
Later, just after dawn, a black man who worked for one of the hall's neighbors went to get some firewood with something catching his attention. A piece of a nightdress that was legs coming out of it. And with the man screaming, he alerted Dr. Steiner and a few others hurried over to the outhouse to see what the commotion was about. Hal walked into the servants' quarters, seeing several pieces of furniture jumbled about. The bed sheets were saturated with blood, dripping off the side and pooling on the wooden floor. At the foot of the bed was a bloody axe. There was a bloody handprint on the wall with finger marks, as fingerprints were called then. Hal followed the blood trail about 50 feet, stopping at the outhouse. And there was Molly Smith, lying on her back, her head nearly split in half. She'd been stabbed repeatedly in the chest and stomach, exposing her organs, blood everywhere. Her arms and legs had similar slashes, soaking the area with blood. This was ungodly butchery. The Austin Police Department's number two guy, Sergeant John Cheneville, arrived on his big bay horse wide-shouldered with thick mustache. He was known for breaking up brawls and saloons, chasing troublemakers down the street, his gaze enough to cower most. Unlike Hal, he had seen his share of dead bodies. This, however, this was something nobody had ever seen before. I mean, murder in Austin looked like a saloon fight gone bad. All impulsive and none carefully planned, no one tries to flee. However, there was no killer holding a bloody weapon standing there this morning. There'd be no forensic deep dive, not in 1884. In 1880, Dr. Henry Fox had published a paper on the individuality of fingerprints and the possibility of them being used in an investigation, but no methodology to make this happen had been developed yet. They could note and copy fingerprints, but unfortunately, any that might have remained around Molly Smith had been crushed by spectators who contaminated the crime scene, which wasn't a thing yet either, as you'll see. Cheneville did have two bloodhounds who were unfortunately overcome with the smell of Molly's blood, never finding a trail. That's what I opened with. Newspaper reporters arrived, not only from Austin's Daily Statesman, but from Galveston, Dallas, Houston, and Fort Worth. Jaunty cigar smokers, some drank too much from concealed flasks, hanging out at the press club above the horseshoe saloon playing poker. Today, they were stone sober, silent, repressing the urge to vomit. I guess it could be an Indian attack, but this hadn't happened in 10 years. Some suspected Walter Spencer, making up a story about an argument turned violent. But those who knew Walter couldn't see the man killing anyone. He had no temper. He was an exemplary employee at the brickyard. Back three years ago, Walter had been arrested for disturbing the peace, but otherwise he had no criminal record. This violent, bloody mess of an assault was not a first-time homicide. Nancy Anderson, a black nurse working in the hall home, described the couple's relationship as being on very good terms. Tom Calmers confirmed that Spencer had not acted like a man who had just committed a savage murder, nor was Walter covered in blood when he saw him. Instead of fleeing, he had come seeking help, worried for Molly's welfare. Molly's ex-boyfriend, Lem Brooks, came under scrutiny next. A glass watcher in a bar in town, 
he and Molly had been born in Waco, Texas, where they went about together. I do love the phraseology of the day. After the death of Molly's son from a previous relationship, she had moved to Austin for a fresh start with Lem following her. Lem Brooks was not happy when she started keeping company with Walter. When police found Lem, he was with his current girlfriend at her shanty. Chenneville arrested Brooks on suspicion of murder, which was a thing then, believing him a jealous ex. Meanwhile, a black undertaker came to take Molly's body to the dead room of the city county hospital for an autopsy. Dr. William Burt recorded the usual autopsy information, Molly's height and weight, examined her hands, fingernails, arms, and wounds. Quote, she looked like the victim of some horrific amateur medical operation. Not sure what else to do, Burt took a few more notes, pulled the sheet over Molly's body, shut the door, and headed up the stone steps, end quote. As dusk descended on Austin, Henry Stamps, the city's lamplighter, went to the two main thoroughfares, lighting 25 gas lamps. Logs were tossed into fireplaces and wood stoves, warming for the cold evening. A few advanced-thinking entrepreneurs turned on electric-powered incandescent light bulbs, guaranteed to last six hours. Wealthier clients dined at restaurants on quail, venison, and quality steaks. Some attended the opera house to watch the comedy The Banker's Daughter. People moved to and fro in horse-drawn hacks called taxis, paying 25 cents for the trip. Over at the dancing and roller skating carnival in Turner Hall, folks turned out to listen to music. Saloons like the Gold Room and Black Elephant were packed with men as women were prohibited. The biggest party on New Year's Eve was the Phantom Ball at the Brunswick Hotel, complete with gowns, masquerade masks, black capes, and wooden swords. I'm picturing something like out of Phantom of the Opera. At midnight, toasts to a prosperous 1885 were made as kids set off Roman candles and set off sky lanterns, hot air balloons made of paper with small candles suspended from the bottom, floating above the night sky. Mayor John Robinson was filled with pride. 44 years old, a real estate lawyer by trade, he endeavored to lead Austin, quote, beyond the good old days of rawhide and chili con carne, end quote. Austin, with graded streets, sewer lines, and a brand new waterworks plant, was on the brink of a glorious future. Governor John Ireland concurred. Pardoning a few convicts on New Year's Day, Governor Ireland met with Austin's Reverend Abraham Grant, pastor of the all-Black African Methodist Episcopal Church. Reverend Grant was complaining of Blacks having to purchase first-class train tickets while being forced to ride in second-class cars, the racism of the day glaringly evident. Murder bookies, racism and segregation is a huge facet of life in 1884. It is part of the story and part of our history, and you know how important accuracy is to me. So I will include it as one of the main themes, just as Skip Hollinsworth did in the book, which you really should read. It actually made me feel better to see how far we've come since these days a work in progress. At this time, Governor Ireland is popular and a favorite candidate for a run at the U.S. Senate. His star was rising. 
bloody work was the glaring headline in the Daily Statesman on New Year's Day, 1885. The unnamed reporter, as bylines were not a thing yet in the 19th century, interviewed Lem Brooks with him insisting, quote, I'm innocent of the murder, and I can prove it by a number of witnesses that I was at the ball at Sand Hill until four in the morning, end quote. It was up to the justice of the peace to conduct an inquest into any unusual death, presenting the facts to six male jurors on how the deceased had died. Yes, all male juries, no women. And the jury would decide the manner of death, accidental, homicide, natural, or suicide. The jury returned the following, quote, We, the jury of inquest, over the remains of Molly Smith, find that she came to her death between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. on the night of December 30th from injuries inflicted with an axe, and we believe said injuries were inflicted by one Lem Brooks, end quote. All right, whoa, that blew my mind. Like, based on what evidence? Oh, and the jury, they also suspected that Lem kept Walter Spencer alive to cast him as the possible culprit. Molly's remains were released to the Black Undertaker, who took her casket to the colored ground, the Black section of the city's cemetery. A beautiful section, but downhill and prone to flooding. Well, of course it was. It wasn't until late January after the Cattleman's Ball that Lem Brooks was released from jail due to lack of evidence. Yeah. But white society wasn't ruffled, dismissing the murder as a jealousy-driven Negro killing. Nothing to be concerned about. And the Galveston News editor chided Reverend Abraham Brandt that he would, quote, serve his race better by addressing his efforts to the suppression of their murderous instincts, end quote. Oh, how wrong they were. Terribly wrong about so much. As weeks passed, a naive Austin celebrated its prosperity. The press club hosted its annual grand literacy and musical concert, featuring genteel ladies singing popular ditties such as Thou Art Too Near and Yet So Far and New York City's Miss Louise Armando arrived, the Lady Velocipede champion of the world. All right, I had no idea what a Velocipede is, so I had to look it up. And it is a bicycle with a huge front wheel. And there is a sketch of it on the blog, so take a peek. Miss Armando was preparing to race Austin's best trot horses at the upcoming fair. Spectators roared as she sped down the raceway ahead of two of the best horses by a full length. This was a time of many firsts, of growth and of achievement. At the Capitol building, Temple Houston, son of General Sam Houston, the former president of the Republic of Texas, made a stunning proposal that half of the clerks employed by state government should be women. Completely radical idea with, quote, scores of handsomely dressed and intelligent ladies, end quote, showing support for this. And while it had no chance of passing, women's rights were coming to Texas and thrilling the women. And then the wedding of the season took place. Dr. Ashley Denton's daughter, Ella, age 19, was wed to Dr. James P. Givens at this Texas State Lunatic Asylum. Yes, that's what it was called the Texas State Lunatic Asylum, where Dr. Denton was superintendent. 
Now, most people avoided the asylum, quote, galloping by so that an escaped lunatic couldn't come out of the woods and catch anyone, end quote. A newspaper reported the asylum was, quote, crowded to suffocation by inmates in insufficient clothes, dirty and untidy, end quote, with screaming echoing in the dark corridors. New superintendent Dr. Denton began working to transform it into, quote, a refuge for those unfortunates whose voices cannot be heard, end quote. New beds, fresh paint, new landscaping, complete with lily ponds, benches, flower beds that were not just cosmetic, but therapeutic. Patients were permitted to wear much more dignified normal clothing with staff in crisp gray uniforms. Dogs and cats were allowed, giving the grounds a more homey sense. And fun fact, pets help mental health. Caring for them helps one feel wanted and needed. Pets reduce anxiety while boosting self-confidence. And they are great listeners who offer unconditional love with no criticism. So true of my kitty, Olivia, who just passed at age 17. She was a great source of affection and kitty kisses, and she's so missed. And from the 2019 study, The Role of Oxytocin in Dog-Owner Relationships by Sarah Marshall Pisini et al., quote, when dogs and humans interact with each other in a positive way, for example, cuddling, both partners exhibited a surge in, in oxytocin, a hormone which has been linked to positive emotional states, end quote. So Dr. Denton is ahead of his time in doing the right thing here. Denton also welcomed all who were brought to him, topping off at 550 patients, believing that the serene, beautiful environment would restore at least a portion of sanity with the goal of returning to productive society. Having his daughter's wedding on the grounds was Dr. Denton's way of introducing his remodeled institution to Austin society, wildly successful, as it was said to be, quote, the most enjoyable event that ever occurred within the asylum, end quote. And the young couple headed off to wedded bliss, guests and patients cheering them off. None foresaw Austin's descent into fear and chaos that was about to begin. March 2, 1885, was the 49th anniversary of Texas's independence from Mexico, with a huge parade in Austin on the main avenue, with Mayor Robertson laying the 16,000-pound granite cornerstone for the new state capitol building that was beginning construction. 25,000 people observed, with 10,000 of them visitors coming to celebrate, all dressed in holiday attire. Floats drawn by horses represented city businesses, government officials, trade unions, bakeries, civic organizations. Governor Ireland spoke of Austin's, quote, a monument to the wisdom, taste, and energy of our age, end quote. A week later, it all went to hell. A young woman, a German immigrant, awoke in the night to see a man standing above her saying, quote, your money or your life, end quote. She instantly screamed and he hit her over the head, wounding her. The homeowner rushed in to see what was amiss and the man ran off. Four nights later, a black cook was awakened by, quote, violent shaking at the locked door to her servants' quarters. When the cook looked out the window, there was no one there, end quote. An hour later, on the estate of Major Joseph Stewart, a former Confederate officer, 
two young Black women were awakened by the rattling of their shanty door. One got up, opened it, and stepped out to look where she was grabbed from behind, crying out in shock and fear. He released her and fled into the darkness. She never saw his face. The servant women spent the rest of the night in the manor house kitchen, quaking with fear. Later, on returning to their rooms, they found a lamp lit, one they had not left on, and their clothes and bedding tossed. Clearly, the assailant had come back into their rooms while the women were cowering in the steward estate. Two nights later, at the home of clothing shop owner Abe Williams, an intruder committed, quote, a determined and brutal assault on the Williams housekeeper, end quote, then vanished. All right, pretty scary stuff. There was a reprieve of a few days, but the attacks resumed March 19th, this time at the residence of Colonel J.H. Pope, a cotton farm owner. Two Swedish teenage servant girls, Christine Martinson and Clara Strand, heard a tapping sound on their window and froze. Crash! A bullet came through the window, striking the wall. Screaming like banshees, the girls ran towards the main house as Clara was grabbed from behind. The shot and Clara screaming drew Colonel Pope outside, guns drawn. The attacker let go of Clara and ran off into the night. All right, so this guy's some kind of ninja. I mean, this is incredible. Things calmed down with Clara and Christine returning to their rooms, locking and barricading the door as yet another bullet rips through the window and hit Christine in the upper back. Fortunately, it did not strike any vital organs. All right, this is mind-blowingly unusual. As Austin was modernizing, well, yeah, thefts went up, as newspaper reports indicated. There were reports of black chicken thieves stealing chickens from yards of the city's white residents. Newspaper reports from January 1885 indicated that a thief robbed a house of its food. Another thief threw a big log through a window of an elderly woman, Mrs. Cope, bounding inside, grabbing her purse, and fleeing. There are reports of black chicken thieves stealing chickens from the yards of the city's white residents. And, evidently, men jumped off trains stalking the city, looking for items to steal, then hopped back on, taking the train to the next town and repeating. But violent assaults? No, this was new. With this string of servant quarter invasions, white residents assumed black men were attacking servant women. The headline, Bad Blacks, appears in the Daily Statesman, which reads, quote, It seems from the sameness of the deviltry and its constant repetition, this is, must be a regular gang of these brutes who perambulate the city in the small hours of the night to do the unholy work, end quote. All right, so a little bit about Austin's Black community. In 1885, about 3,500 Black citizens were living in Austin, which is roughly 20% of the population. Many lived in servant shanties in their employers' backyards or in single rooms above shops where they worked. Others lived in all-Black neighborhoods on the edge of the city. For example, Clarksville developed on the land that former Governor Elisha Peace gave to his emancipated slaves at the end of the Civil War. Modest homes these were. They consisted of three rooms, one behind the next, with as many as 10 family members living there. They had low-hanging ceilings, small doors, and required occupants to stoop coming and going. 
and the nearby stream that carried excrement away flooded occasionally. And Clarksville was one of the nicer Black neighborhoods. The poorest of the Black neighborhoods consisted of nine shanties right next to the dump, which was the source of food. I'm heartsick conveying this to you, but this is the state of affairs and another reason I picked this book. Most of Austin's Black residents were still uneducated. Very few could read. They took the lowest paying jobs, usually as domestics or doing common labor. Janitors, barbers, porters, carriage drivers, cloakroom attendants, waiters, bellhops, shoveling coal, working in sawmills and brickyards. Black women were mainly domestic servants, beginning their days before dawn, washing with rags dipped in buckets of water, eating molasses and cornmeal, and then heading to the big house to perform dozens of duties from stoking the fireplaces, cooking, cleaning, scrubbing, mopping, hauling waste, plus laundry, and there's no machines of any time, so this is pretty intensive continued labor. They then prepared dinner, clean up the kitchen, and took leftovers for their own meals. They got Sundays off and usually attended one of the Black churches. Comparing this existence to that of slavery reconstruction, where, quote, darkies could be ku kluxed, end quote, meaning hanged, life had improved for the Black community in Austin. This is the improved version. Black-owned shops opened their business districts. They had a blacksmith, an unofficial bank for loans, their own churches like Reverend Grants. For those who could read, there was a Black newspaper, the Austin Citizen. Entertainment took place at Black restaurants, the Black Saloon, the Black Elephant, dances at Sand Hill. There were Black traveling acts, such as Dick the Demon Negro, who was a Black cowboy who wrestled steers, holding on to them with his teeth. The best news of 1885 was that Black children were finally being educated. Three state-funded colored schools opened, serving about 400 students. Teens could go on to attend to Lotson College and Normal Institute, opened by the all-white Christians of the American Missionary Association. Tolotson offered courses in mathematics, English, and practical training, such as carpentry, home construction, farming, canning, cooking, sewing, and bookkeeping. The daughter of ex-governor, Julia Peace, hosted an annual Christmas party for Clarksville residents, giving each child a bag of candy or a dime. The German immigrant-run Pressler Beer Garden held the Juneteenth celebration each year, commemorating freedom from Confederate rule. White businesses had begun to allow Blacks to shop in their stores at specific times, and some saloons created a segregated Black-only area. In 1883, a Blacksmith, Albert Carrington, was elected as one of the city's aldermen, representing the Black 7th Ward. It was progress, if painfully slow and somewhat insulting. The theory of eugenics was also in full swing. I use this definition of eugenics from the National Human Genome Research Institute. Quote, eugenics is a discredited belief that selective breeding for certain inherited human traits can improve the fitness of future generations. For eugenicists, fitness corresponded to a narrow view of humanity and society that developed directly from the ideologies and practices of scientific racism, colonialism, ableism, and imperialism, end quote. Not a fan. It was this that drove the view that Blacks were intellectually inferior to whites, 
with publications in medical journals affirming this as fact. As a result of this blatant bias, young men were regularly blamed for all kinds of crime, especially theft, and now murder. Significantly, all the serving women who had been attacked had not been able to get a look at the assailant. A couple of them told police they thought he might have been black, but weren't certain. One said he was possibly yellow. Another said he wore blackface, like a performer in a minstrel show. The German servant woman said her attacker was probably white. Now that could be a game changer, right? But no, 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 that, that couldn't be. White society could not imagine that a white man would want to terrorize harmless servant women, dismissing the German girl as terrified and confused. Instead of investigating, one resident suggested that the Austin PD round up the worst black criminal offenders and beat them to within an inch of their lives to send a message. A letter to the editor suggested homeowners take out their guns and fire away no questions asked should a black intruder breach their homes. Seen as not effective enough, forming vigilante committees was suggested, which means lynching gangs. All right, fear and insecurity do terrible, terrible things to people. Reporters sought out Austin's marshal, Groomsley, the guy who was recovering from dengue fever through most of January. Blue Blood, son of a city politician, Joseph Lee. Groomsley was a teetotaler, a first for an Austin marshal. Professional, polite, and a reformer. The days of the gunslinging marshal shooting the bad guys dead in the streets were over. Lee suggested changes in the hiring practice for the Austin PD, hoping to have more mature officers going forward. He also pointed out studies showing a city needed an officer for every 500 residents, meaning Austin was 22 short. So most nights, only four officers were on patrol and usually downtown. Lee said, quote, I have too few officers with which to properly guard the city. Every man who will give the subject the least attention is bound to admit, end quote. The next council meeting addressed the hiring request, but tripling the size of the department was opposed by Mayor Robertson and the aldermen. One alderman suggested paying a reward of $500 to anyone who shot a black man invading a servant's quarters. Another suggested deputizing special policemen, with another suggesting this information be kept secret from the public to keep the attacker unaware. Laughing at this, another alderman insisted the killer couldn't read the papers. In the end, the city council voted to pay 12 men $2 a night to patrol the white neighborhoods. No new police officers would be added. At the end of March, Sergeant Shettleville and his officers arrested black laborer Gunn Johnson for breaking and entering and barbershop worker Abe Pearson for breaking, entering, and rape. Both insisted they were innocent and no new attacks occurred, except Sergeant Shettleville's wife, hearing a noise, saw a shadow of a man and fired away at her neighbor, who turns out was stumbling home drunk and wandered up the wrong lawn. And fortunately, Mrs. Geneville missed. And we begin part two of The Midnight Assassin, April 1885 to August 1885. Two weeks later, 
Austin had 12 very bored temporary policemen who decided to entertain themselves by hanging out in saloons or brothels near to their beats. But they would stay on through the upcoming extravaganza event, Texas Day, April 21st, 1885. All right, so though the largest state in the Union, now recall Alaska is not a state until 1959, Texas had never participated in any of the fashionable, exciting international expositions like other U.S. cities had. Texas skipped the 1876 Philadelphia Centennial, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, with over 10 million people attending. Correcting this, Governor Ireland decreed that Texas's debutante ball event would be at the upcoming New Orleans Exposition. The New Orleans Exposition was built on a former plantation with an observation tower with never-seen-before electric elevators and experimental electric streetcars that were creating a buzz. (laughs) The Expo Centerpiece was the massive U.S. government and state exhibits hall, which covered 33 acres. This was the largest roof structure in the country at the time, and it was illuminated with 5,000 electric light bulbs. This is a big deal. In the front of the hall was the Liberty Bell brought there from Philadelphia. Now, I had no idea that the Liberty Bell like went on tour. I didn't know that happened. Now, paraphrasing, Governor Ireland's staff secured the largest space, spelling out in bales of cotton the words Lone Star, spelled out in sacks of grain, Welcome to Texas. Printed on a giant billboard, and this must have been a giant billboard, were these Texas slogans. A most healthful state, a cotton state, a grain state, a sugar state, a tobacco state, a garden state. Now watch it, Texas, that one belongs to New Jersey. A fruit state, a livestock state, a timber state, an iron and coal state, a marble and granite state, a manufacturing state, a mercantile state. Okay. Texas trees, insects, rocks, minerals, 207 types of Texas cactus were also on display. And it's really likely that the phase, everything's bigger in Texas, was first uttered in New Orleans in April 1886. Note, there is no an oil state. Well, this is not an oversight because the Texas oil boom would begin in 1894 with a trickle at the Corsican oil field 56 miles from Waco and in 1886, so next year in this story, the automobile would be invented in Germany by Carl Benz, like, you know, Mercedes-Benz. And then in 1908, American Henry Ford would invent the Model T and the car era kicks in. So we're not into oil and all of that as yet. And fun fact the Texas State Exhibit became all the rage, the surprise hit of the expo. Coinciding with this was the April 21st Texas Day in Austin, where 10,000 people came to hear Governor Ireland's keynote address touting Texas's achievements, prosperity, growth, and potential for greatness, with the applause deafening. The governor's guests were later served champagne punch, with the celebration lasting into the night. 
Outside, the newly installed 125-foot high towers with electric lamps emitted 36,000 candle power, making it look like daytime. And some people wondered, quote, why would anyone want to go to such expense to light up a city throughout the night? What possible purpose would it serve? End quote. Yeah, well, stay tuned. Coming off this great success, people purchased incandescent lights, telephones, science fiction books by Jules Verne. Oh, remember Captain Nemo? I loved him. The temporary police were disbanded by April 27th, with optimism growing. Two days later, as a German servant woman slept, a man snuck into the cabin at the rear of the home, grabbed her, clamped his hand over her mouth, threw her on the floor, and fled. Later, that same night, a man entered another servant quarters, grabbed a woman holding a razor to her throat and threatening to kill her if she screamed. At that same moment, friends of hers came by, saw her door opened, called over to her, and scared off the assailant. It was very dark and very difficult to see, but one of her friends swore the man was wearing a woman's dress. The next day, someone threw a huge rock at a serving woman's cabin, causing her to scream, which roused a neighbor who came out gun in hand, shooting at the fleeing man, and he missed. An hour later, the president of the City National Bank, J.M. Brackenridge, woke to a noise in his backyard and looked out the window and saw his cook fighting with the man. Shouting from the window, the attacker ran off. A few hours later, rocks were thrown at his house. Was it the same man returned or another one? But what the hell? Four packs in two days? The Austin PD's response was to arrest three more black men, Andrew Jackson, Newt Harper, and Henry Wallace, described in the paper as, quote, hard-looking Negroes, end quote. Janitor Jack Ross and an elderly black man, Old John, were arrested as well. Old John had previously lived at the state lunatic asylum after claiming that he had buried $260 million in gold, and so there were suspicions about him because he had been released by Dr. Denton, who deemed him completely harmless. All right, so that anyone would think that an elderly man is running around the city from backyard to backyard, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Although there was some speculation that he might have been the man in the dress. So Cheneville has zero evidence that any of these men had anything to do with the attacks. What they hoped is that someone might break and tell the police something useful. And then the attacks did cease with these arrests. And I have a theory as to why that was the case, which I'll get into in second cast. April turned into May, and the weather was lovely. Women and couples would sit curbside outside saloons in their carriages as waiters brought them slow gin fizzes with picturesque sunsets ending the days. On May 6th, many on the east side attended the wedding of Miss Lucy Lomax to Mr. H.G. Grant at the Black Baptist Church. Eliza Shelley did not attend the wedding, working at Dr. Lucian Johnson's, a prominent medical doctor and a former state legislator. Eliza fixed the Johnson's dinner that night, cleaned up, and polished some silver. Finishing up, she headed out to her shanty at the rear of the house, about 45 steps away. Inside, she hugged her three young boys, all under eight, giving them the leftovers for dinner. 
and soon they were all asleep, cuddled in the same bed. The next morning, Dr. Johnson rose early to buy some groceries. His wife heard Eliza's children screaming, and she sent her niece in to see what all the noise was about. A few minutes later, Mrs. Johnson heard her niece screaming too, as she collapsed speechless in her arms. Dr. Johnson happened to return and went out to see what was happening out back. He found Eliza's boys huddled in the corner, and on the floor, Eliza wrapped in a quilt, parts of her brain oozing from a gaping axe wound in her right temple. Sergeant Cheneville arrived, noting that both of Eliza's trunks had been broken into, her garments tossed on the floor. Moving Eliza's body outside where the light would be better, they realized that there were other bed linens wrapped around her. Once removed, the extent of Eliza's injuries were revealed. In addition to the head injury, there was a small hole between her eyes, possibly made by a screwdriver or thin rod. Oh my God, I'm just so skeeved. Her torso showed several knife wounds, some four inches deep, leaving horrible gashes and torn flesh. Reporters arrived, as did the bloodhounds, who sniffed, quote, large, broad, barefoot tracks, end quote, but could not catch a scent. Shanneville spoke to the oldest boy, age seven. He told the sergeant that during the night he'd been shaken awake by a man with a white mask over his face, a piece of cloth with eye holes cut in it. The man asked where his mother kept the money, and he told her he didn't know if his mother had any money. The man made him put his head under a pillow with orders not to look again or he'd kill him, and then he said he'd be off to St. Louis in the morning train. Cheneville thought the story was ludicrous. Was the boy in shock? Yet the boy repeated the same story to a San Antonio Express reporter. But wait a second, if he's robbing people, why servants who are going to have the least? Why not the homeowners or business people or banks? So this tells me this is not about robbery. A totally different motivation is driving this. Dr. Johnson was very upset, saying that Eliza, quote, was an excellent woman. He described her as hardworking, reliable, honest, so exemplary. He said he, his wife and children had tended to treat her like a lesser member of the family, end quote. It made no sense that someone would kill Eliza over her money. She barely had any. Eliza had no enemies, no romantic interests. With her husband in prison, she remained very devoted to him. And once again, a black woman's body was taken to the hospital by the black undertaker for an autopsy. So police went off looking for a barefoot black man and did find 19-year-old Andrew William, who lived in the vicinity. Questioning him, they realized he was a, quote, half-wit colored boy, end quote, whose footprint did not match those at Eliza's. The headline screamed across the San Antonio Daily Express, a mother butchered in the presence of her children. In the Fort Worth Gazette, inhabitants in the capital city are again shocked by blood-curling murder. And the longest, that award goes to the Daily Statesman. The foul fiends keep up their wicked work. Another murdered at dead of night by some unknown assassin bent on plunder. Another deed of deviltry in the crimson catalog of crime. Well, that's pretty impressive. Well, theories ran amok. A gang of black men who supposedly worked for a black labor union, which had been recruiting black women seeking higher wages, who were now attacking women who hadn't signed up. 
a young drugstore clerk, William Sidney Porter, dubbed this gang the Servant Girl Annihilators. The problem is they're being very logical about motive, and this motive has no logic to it. In the Black neighborhoods, there was no talk of gangs, but demons, or one with the evil eye. Some of the elderly still practice hoodoo, a slave-era folk magic. Servant girls were now being given special magical powder to sprinkle along their doorways to protect them from evil. Potions, mojo bags, were concocted to ensure long life and good luck, an indicator of just how insecure people were feeling. Chenneville met with his two Negro officers, he did have two, who offered no information. They were as stymied as anybody else. But on May 10th, there came a break. Black man Andrew Rogers came into the police station saying he thought he knew who killed Eliza. A neighbor of his had carried on a romantic relationship with her very briefly. His name was Ike Plummer. Rogers had seen Eliza and Plummer arguing because she wouldn't loan him any money. And he'd been passing by Dr. Johnson's and witnessed them arguing again the very day she'd been killed. And Rogers saw a hatchet or hammer in Ike's back pocket. Okay, could be. Immediately, Black Officer Lewis Morris was sent to Plummer's to arrest him on suspicion of murder. Ike Plummer was described as a, quote, tall, ungainly, ill-kept Negro with a continent suggesting more of idiocy than brutality, end quote. He was about 30 years old, arrested twice for vagrancy. He had no history of violent crime as his employer agreed. Once again, there is no physical evidence tying Ike Plummer to the crime, no blood on him, his footprints did not match those at the scene, and no one else could corroborate Roger's story. And since Plummer wasn't a stranger, wouldn't the wisest seven-year-old son have recognized his voice and said so? A reporter wrote as much in the San Antonio Express, suggesting that Andrew Rogers had a feud or some ill feeling towards Plummer and sadly, predicted resumption of violent attacks. He was right. Two weeks later, May 22nd, shoemaker Robert Wireman heard a low, painful groaning coming from his backyard, which evolved into a scream. Wireman found the family cook, Irene Cross, 33 years old, lying on the ground, her arm nearly hacked from her body, with a long horizontal gash from her right eye to her ear. Irene tried to speak, but the blood ran down her face into her mouth, gargling her words. Wireman scooped her up, carried her inside to his spare bedroom. An amazing act of empathy for a black woman at this time. Bravo, Mr. Wireman, for putting humanity first. He tied a cloth around her arm to stem the flow of blood and another over her head wound, asking, who did this? Who did this? But a stunned, confused, injured Irene did not reply. But Irene was alive. Reporters hovered outside the bedroom trying to get a look at her. One who did meet with her was staggered by the butchery done to her, and his subsequent article was reviewed in the third person to avail him some distance from the vile butchery. Meanwhile, the bloodhounds were brought in, and, strike three, no trail was found. Was the excessive blood overpowering, or were these really bad bloodhounds? All right, you've got to wonder. Now, living with Irene Cross was her 12-year-old nephew, 
who slept in the other room across from hers in the two-room cabin. He told police he'd seen a shadowy figure of a man, quote, coming through the outer door leading into his room. The man was holding a knife and quietly told the boy that he was not there to hurt him and ordered the boy not to scream or yell, end quote. The man went into Irene's room, which had two single beds, one for her and one for her 17-year-old son, who works nights as a porter in an Austin saloon. The nephew said the assailant was, quote, a big chunky Negro wearing a brown, wide-brimmed cloth hat, ragged coat, blue shirt, black pants rolled up over his bar feet and ankles, end quote. But how he seen this guy in the dark cabin? So questions remain. And then, heartbreakingly, Eileen Cross succumbed to her injuries, dying the morning of May 25th, never able to share information about the man who had attacked her. Whispers of black gangs continued, but now they were escaped convicts living in caves along the Colorado River, which is why they couldn't be found. They were after the serving women because the gang leader had contracted a sexually transmitted disease, maybe even tuberculosis, from a serving woman. And a more insane theory spouted that Molly Smith's murder had triggered some kind of killing mania that now infected the black neighborhoods inflaming bloodthirsty instincts, leading them to a murderous hatred of Black women. And this concludes part one of Ungodly Butchery, well-named, right? The Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer by Skip Hollinsworth. It is such a different story. Much of it was lost to history. And part two, The Remarkable Ghoul, will come out in two weeks, continuing the story of the hunt for America's first serial killer and the victims he leaves behind. The twists and turns in this are just impossible to predict. You won't believe it. And Murder Bookies, my next book is The Last Time We Saw Her by Robert Scott. Blonde, 19-year-old Brooke Wahlberger was raised in a close-knit religious family. On a summer morning in Oregon, while cleaning lampposts at an apartment complex managed by her sister, Brooke vanished. One minute she was there, and the next moment all that was left were her flip-flops and an echo of her screen. Her family suffered not knowing Brooke's fate, and the investigation turned over every rock, but it would take years and years to find out what happened to Brooke and a number of other young women. Thank you for listening. You can email me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out my blog and my merch store. And happy reading and happy new year, murder bookies. Source material, show notes, photos, snack and drink information for the Midnight Assassin trilogy are found on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna and lyrics by Otto Harbuck.